hope you're having a fantastic day and a wonderful week. Welcome to another episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat. Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG Meaty Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sapphire. Hi there, my name is Safa Burnell. I'm a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry, there's always something we can do. Because we, we aren't, aren't dead yet. Disney's no longer making DVDs or Blu-rays. Like Disney's no longer making physical media. Uh, they've instead given those rights to Sony to make Blu-rays and things like that on their behalf, which I think is really interesting. I, I don't know why I just never expected a, a play like that. I mean, some of the theories I've been hearing about it are the overhead cost of producing and then warehousing physical media like Blu-ray oh, yeah. and discs and things like that is something that they're trying to narrow down right now for their stockholders after a fairly, you know, (laughs) brutal brutal year at the box office in 2023. Yeah, we talked Um, about it a little bit uh, last week when this this episode is coming out. In the previous episode, we discussed that a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, I also think that they're, you know, they purchased Hulu. They've also, they've got Disney+. Plus. Do they not also have ESPN? Yes. Yeah, so they've got ESPN, they've got Hulu, they've got Disney+. Plus. It would make business sense for them to want people to go on ESPN and Hulu and Disney+, Plus rather than owning the DVDs themselves. But then, of course, you get into the whole idea of potentially lost media, and that's going to be an entire episode later on, because... I'm so glad that you cut it off before, because I, I literally just took a breath in, because I was going to be like... <gasps> Lost video. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I knew we were going to do an entire episode on this. So uh. <laughs> I plan to be well educated during that episode. Yeah, I'm pulling up some articles just to see if I could find numbers on what's going on with uh, physical media. And yeah, right here, uh, Variety is talking about uh, physical disc sales being in decline. And they say that revenue for physical media in the U.S. dropped 28% to 754 million in the first half of 2023, compared to 1.05 billion in the prior year, according to data from Trade Association (DEG), the Digital Entertainment Group. So, yeah, I really think it's physical media is just going down. We're in the world of streaming now. We're not going to see those kind of physical sales. I think really, it's it's probably collectors and people that are like re- they really really want a specific film in their collection that are going to go out and purchase the physical disc for it at least that's how i personally go about things i don't have a lot of physical copies of things anymore but i have the important stuff to me i think it's important to remember too that depending on where you are in the world you might not have a stable enough internet connection to allow for streaming movies especially at high quality you don't have to go that far out of vancouver to get to places where it's better if you have the disc or you've already downloaded that thing if you want to watch it the whole way through so even in a country like canada having a physical disc for a lot of things depending on where you are is actually incredibly important 
going uh, backwards and forwards like I did to Africa multiple times over a couple of decades, physical media was important there too. <laughs> you know, Also, when I was in Thailand, physical media was important there. I mean, obviously, there is still stable internet connections in a lot of places, but having the physical disc meant one less thing that had to be kind of stabilized in order for you to enjoy your night. So I, I think it really is dependent on basically where you are. I have a slightly different take on that. I come from a generation that, interestingly enough, when I was a kid, you went to the theaters to see it. And then they started coming out where you could get like recordings of songs and things like that. And then they started, started out where you could rent it. You could rent the movie and watch it at home. That was a big thing. And then it started to grow where more and more of these machines started coming into the homes and people wanted to have their own libraries. And that like started a whole chain reaction of thing. But as I grew up, you know, as I got older and older, the physical medium changed. It went from VHS. Then there was the, with the, um, the beta tapes. There's a lot of tech coming out very fast that all did similar stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and then you get the laser disc, and then the DVD, and then, yeah. Yeah, and all throughout that, there was stuff that was recorded on, like, one medium, and it changed to another medium, and before they could record it to the new medium, nobody ever did because there was so much new stuff to put on there. So if you wanted to get something for the machine you were using, you started to run out of places to get it. Oh, no, I got to buy a new machine because now I I can't get the stuff. And so now... For me, in my generational age, and I'm seeing everything is going on to digital streaming. Well, I remember what it's like not having the internet and being able to stream that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If, what, what if something goes on? I can't connect. How am I going to get my stuff? So I look like a freaking small town media library in the basement. I am not kidding. I have these really tall stacks. We have filled we at first had filled them with VHS, and then it came to the DVDs. And so we started replacing all of our VHS with, with DVDs, and now it's into the Blu-ray. But, and then we just modernized our players that can play both without problems and stuff like that. But we have this because there are so many times when you don't have the option to connect or anything like you were saying, those who don't live where it's free, because something always happens. And when that something always happens and you're stuck without power or anything, it's so comforting to be able to go down and escape from like whatever is going on. To have that, to know that you got it, you can see it, you can watch it all you want, that is so huge. And it's on hand. I don't have to go to the theaters all the time to see what I want. I can get it at home and I can keep it at home. You have it. It's on DVD. It's yours. Yeah, my dad used to be really into collecting the new DVDs and Blu-rays when I was a kid. And he did a similar thing. He'd usually buy new versions of the old stuff we had so we could still watch it. And things like Lord of the Rings we have in multiple formats. And it's always like, oh wow, which version out of the 12 copies we have do you want to watch? <laughs> and speaking of fantasy, let's jump into our topic for today. Mythical and legendary creatures rooted in history. I think something that we'll get into today when it comes to monsters is how so many monsters seem to spontaneously erupt in multiple different places. The same thing with a lot of myths that you get a lot of the same stories, 
coming from completely different cultures who supposedly should not have had any connection whatsoever. There were connections between Egypt, China, Europe, and the Middle East oh, 5,000 years ago? Back in, you know, early Greek times? There was still connection, especially because China was connected to India. And then India traded all the time with, like, proto-Hellenistic landscapes. And I'm a diffusionist. I'm not an isolationist. So, obviously, I'm going to believe that people were talking longer we think they were. And then, too, like, in the last 2,000 years, even before the last 2,000 years, there was a connection between the Middle East and the subcontinent of India. And we can see this, too, through the initial rise of Christianity in Ethiopia and in the Tamil region of the Indian subcontinent. The Tamil region of the Indian subcontinent uh, was one of the first places on earth that actually kind of took to historical Christianity. And we see that with St. Philip. We see that with the way that some of the lives of the saints went. You know, I think it's the similar kind of thing when you look at architecture in ancient times and you see how many cultures have pyramids. How did a step pyramid come to happen spontaneously in multiple cultures around the same time? You know, a lot of people go, oh, it's aliens. No, you know, it could be travel. It could also just be that it's a fairly stable way to create tall architecture. But at the same time, there is still that sort of intrinsic creative subconscious across the entirety of the human organism, which can burst forth with certain stories and ideas. And when we're looking at how that works with monsters, and we can see that humans... For the most part, a lot of us are afraid of the dark. Regardless of where you're from, dark still comes and dark is still dangerous and scary. That is not going to change. People who sail are afraid of beaching their ships. They are afraid of rocks in shallow waters that could damage the hull. They are afraid of certain weather patterns and things. And that brings us to Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla and Charybdis are from Greek myth. I'm not going to be talking about James Joyce's use of Scylla and Charybdis in the Ulysses novel, because I don't think I want to get into that noise. Once upon a time, there was a princess named Scylla, who always bathed in this one specific pool during the heat of the day, and she was beloved of Glaucus. And Glaucus, who could not get Scylla to want to marry him, ran to Circe, the demigoddess witch. And he tried to get Circe to create a love potion or some form of love magic, something that would make Scylla replicate his love for her back to him. And instead, Circe, who had fallen in love with Glaucus, got incredibly jealous. So what does she do? She transformed Scylla into a monster with a poison that she put in her favorite pool. And it made everything basically from the waist down erupt into like, baying dog heads and crazy monstrous stuff. And she was known thereafter to sit in her pool and snap her sharp teeth at sailors going by in an attempt to feast upon their souls. And then you have Charybdis, the whirlpool of unspeakable hunger. And across a narrow strait, Charybdis lurked. A monstrous whirlpool caused by the god Zeus and Poseidon in a fit of rage. 
and Charybdis would erupt multiple times a day, swallowing vast amounts of seawater before spewing it forth with a devastating force, and ships caught in its grasp were mercilessly pulled into a watery oblivion. And so there was a narrow strait, a perilous passage, and Odysseus had to choose whether or not he would skirt around the monstrous Scylla, or whether he would brave Charybdis's massive whirlpool. And when we look at the story first of Scylla, this woman who becomes a monster because of jealousy and has these really sharp jaws, what you can really break that down to is if there is a narrow pass, which there are plenty of in the Aegean, let's be honest, just the topographical location on earth. There's a lot of islands. There's a lot of narrow passes. There's a lot of shallow and deep water. It's not exactly the easiest place in the world to navigate. You have really sharp and jagged rocks along the edge of a strait or an island. And some of those rocks are going to be underneath the surf, depending on the time of day. So you might not see them if it's inclement weather. You know, the people who are sailing on ancient ships in Grecian waters back in the day, thousands of years ago, they just have their eyes to see where the rocks are. So they don't necessarily know where all of the, the dangerous places are near the shore. And although they could navigate by the stars and everything like that, they did have navigational, you know, equipment to then navigational ways about them. Most ships stayed within sight of land, <laughs> especially around the Aegean. They, they navigated, a lot of them navigated around the Mediterranean through sight of land. And so they need to be close enough to see the land, but they don't necessarily see where some of these dangers actually are. And you could beach your ship. You can actually destroy your ship's hull if they go against those jagged rocks. So Scylla was a way of warning people, don't get too close to the shore. Well, at the same time, Charybdis likely was just freak weather pattern that would happen in a certain narrow strait where you have different currents meeting and would create an actual whirlpool. And... This gets us into, a, well, why didn't they just say, you know, that, that Scylla was just the ragged cliff face and Charybdis was nothing but a storm? Well, you have to think of how people absorb information. We personify things usually in order to remember them more. Humans look for pattern and symbol. We search for meaning and for intent. The rise of philosophies like optimistic nihilism, which negate divine intent, is a fairly new phenomenon when seen in the larger context of humans' majority search for the divine. So there's always been the majority of humans searching for the divine, and then a minority of humans who are like, yeah, well, we think it's meaningless. So this idea that nihilism is just a 20th century thing is wrong. You know, there has always been that sort of flow in humanity going back thousands of years. Like we have some nihilistic writings back in Hellene times as well. But for the majority of people, they were searching for, you know, either divine or devilish intent in the world to kind of explain the things that they didn't have necessarily the scientific information to explain. And also, if you're trying to tell people to stay away from the effing rocks, it's a lot easier if you go, oh, don't you know about Scylla? What? Who the fuck is Scylla? Oh my gosh, dude, you don't know. Okay. Scylla is this monster. Monster? Oh my God. She was this beautiful princess. Really? Ooh, how beautiful. Like really? Oh, nice. Oh, man. yeah. And then this is what's going to happen. Your people are going to get eaten off your ship. Holy crap. I better stay away from Scylla. 
Like you're going to remember a story about a woman whose bottom half got turned into dogs by a jealous witch a lot more than you're necessarily going to remember that the cliffs are scary. Yeah. And on top of that, I just think as humans, I think a good portion of us, where if we hear there's a big storm, we think, eh, we'll be fine. We've been through it before. We've been through worse. It's it's not going to be that bad. Oh, that hurricane. It's okay. I mean, as somebody from Florida, living in Florida, I see that constantly where people are just think it's going to be fine. It's not going to be as bad as that person said. They're wrong. It can't be that bad. But if you tell me this giant Godzilla monster is going to come stomping through here, I'm a little more likely to uh, run away. <laughs> There's a reason we name hurricanes. Doesn't this take into a, account the fact that humans, they're waiting for something. They're bored. They're sitting around a campfire. Who can scare who the most? And they base it on something that, they, that they've encountered. Well, what can I do? They try to one-up each other. And so... They take the danger and they make it into their into a story that way as well. Yeah, well, anthropologically, we'll talk about kind of the societal creation of monsters from the perspective of people around the campfire a little bit later in the episode. Creating a monster out of a whirlpool, creating a monster out of jagged cliffs, creating a monster out of the predatory eyes in the dark is first defining something which you can then find ways of either defeating, appeasing, or avoiding. And that is basic survival. That is what people need to do to survive. It is a uniquely human and upper-minded circumstance. I say upper-minded circumstance because you can see certain things like this potentially in dolphins and in octopi as well. So, you know, it's not necessarily just a human thing. We don't know what kind of stories the dolphins tell themselves. But we know that dolphins have upper-level reason in a lot of things. They create their own languages, their own songs, their own metaphors. Like, we know this. And they've just recently discovered that um, elephants give each other names. Oh, I'm going to cry. Oh That's my adorable. Gosh. I believe it. I believe it. So when it comes to monster and monstrosity, that search for symbol, reason, and pattern can lead the mind to a method of defeating the monster and reinstituting the status quo or the societal norm. Something we'll also talk about a little bit later, too. Superstitions come from a desire for control when the human organism encounters a lack of it. Thus, Scylla was a monster instead of the dangers of the rocky shoreline and shallow waters where sailors can't see in inclement weather. You know, she was both the supernatural, but she was also the natural. And finding a way to explain the natural through supernatural terms thus gives most people an inline in how to escape, appease, or destroy that initial monster. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to say that it's not also just a fun thing to scare people around the fire, but you have to admit, too, what those fires initially were. You know, that was the entertainment, but that was also how you'd train people in pre-scholastic times. And so people around the fire talking about all these dangers in the dark, oh, no, now I'm afraid. Well, if you're afraid, you're going to be vigilant. And if you're vigilant, the odds are that pack of wolves that's been tracking you for three days is going to be seen before they cause too much of an issue. It comes from that as well. You know, it comes from this sense of fear as a lead to survival. Anyway, getting back into this. So we've got Scylla and Charybdis, which can be seen as monsters created out of weather patterns, 
out of currents coming into a narrow strait in the Aegean and also cliff faces and the dangers of underwater rocks. Next, we're going to talk about something a little bit more ephemeral, a little bit more fiery. Moving from the sea and into the air, we find creatures like the phoenix and the firebird. The phoenix was believed to be a long-lived bird that symbolized things like resilience, hope, and the perpetual cycle of life, death, and rebirth. In ancient Greek and Roman mythology, every 500 years or so, as its life cycle came to an end, the phoenix would build a little nest with fragrant twigs and set it alight. From the ashes of this nest, a new young phoenix would emerge, reborn to begin its next life cycle. The earliest known ancient phoenix-like designs date back to like 7,000, 8,000 years ago and was discovered in China. The Funghua was a mythical bird from Chinese tradition, often referred to as the Chinese phoenix. In ancient Egypt, there's a similar creature known as the Bennu bird, a symbol of the sun god Ra's daily renewal. These are distinct from the traditional phoenix that we find in Western mythology. So in Slavic mythology, the firebird or Zarpatitia in Ukrainian, similarly pronounced in various other Baltic and Slavic places, might be a little bit more guttural, but that's just the way that I learned to pronounce it from my family, is a symbol of the hardship and the struggle of the quest. While it is a symbol of light, where the hero is given this quest to locate the entire bird, usually from an extant feather, by a prince, a king, or a princess, it is also something quite indicative of hardship. This is seen as an almost impossible quest, as a hero sticking their foot in it and all of a sudden needing to go do some impossible thing that's probably going to end with their deaths because they were prideful or they said that they were the best or they went in front of a king or a princess and declared themselves as heroes. Usually these bogatir, the bogatir is sort of this uh, mythological hero, this folklore hero in a lot of Slavic literature. Strangely, almost always named Ivan for some reason. They just love Ivan. End up receiving their own rebirth or regeneration through the process of finding the firebird. It's usually a difficult process. It is usually a process fraught with a lot of danger and they only really see the purpose of it at the end when they end up making it out alive. (laughs) Uh, So it is that hardship of the quest. We can see that sort of the proto firebird may have come from Persian sources and then migrated up into the Caucasus and into Slavic mythology from there. And so you get a connection between those stories as well. And in the completion of those quests, regeneration of the person usually takes place, whether or not they found the entire bird. And sometimes marriage to the princess, because that's usually what happens in these kinds of stories. This also brings up a sort of mythological pair of birds or kind of similar creatures to sirens, the Syrian and Alkonost. Sirin and Alkonost are like soothsayers. They are half bird, half woman spirits in Slavic folklore whose songs were either so beautiful or so sad it led men to their deaths. So where Alkonost was usually more of a harbinger of death, Sirin was this harbinger of beauty, you know, this sense of, of 
the incredible beauty of nature and the beauty around them. And then there's almost this feeling of loss once Siren finished singing. And so Siren and Alkanos, you also get in a lot of embroidery in Slavic areas and in the Balkans, you get these two sort of mystical birds. You also get the firebird as well in a lot of embroidery. And that's kind of where in those artistic motifs, they have survived when we lost a lot of their stories. We've lost a lot of the stories of the Firebird and of Siren and of Elkanost, not just through the rise of Christianity, that did contribute to Slavic mythology kind of being morphed into these pseudo-Christian stories, but also through the rise of the USSR. And through the taking of all these tales and attempting to make a new mythology that would be completely removed from the decadence of the past. So instead, we see little bits of it, those kind of monstrous things like the Alkanost, reflected in some of the older things that you might be able to find and some symbols that you might be able to see in carving and in clothing. Moving from air onto land, we enter the folklore of the Navajo with the Skinwalkers, originally and more properly called Yinald Lushi in Navajo which means with it, he moves on all fours. They are a deep part of Navajo folklore. These beings started out as spiritual guides and healers who became witches by just deciding to use their powers for evil purposes. Thus, a skinwalker can walk freely within a community and then secretly transform. The animal forms they take are said to be slightly larger than normal, with oversized paw prints, and can often have eerily human, red, or yellow eyes. The most common animal forms they take are the coyote, crow, eagle, fox, owl, or wolf. They do this by wearing the skin of the animal. They can also wear the skin of other people, making for even more terrifying creatures. In addition to their shape-shifting powers, skinwalkers are believed to control nocturnal animals such as owls and wolves. They can read minds, control thoughts, call up spirits of the dead, reanimate corpses, and mimic sounds. While in human form, they can make potions and use spells primarily to sicken and kill those around them. Killing a skinwalker is difficult as wounds to the animal form carry over to the human form, but not necessarily in this same place like since the animal is smaller you give a, a serious wound to an animal it'll end up translating into a lesser wound in the human form the navajo rarely like talking about skinwalkers especially to outsiders as talking about them risks drawing their ire skinwalkers are truly malevolent creatures beyond saving and redemption as they exist only to harm others and many versions, they must take human lives to fuel their powers or die themselves. And in even other versions, they kill because they enjoy it. All of these stories serve as cautionary tales against the temptations of dark magic and the consequences they bring as every skinwalker was once a person who became corrupted by a lust for power. So myths and legends aren't static tales that are trapped in the past. These fantastical creatures serve as vessels for transmitting important cultural knowledge. 
Take the Japanese yokai. These diverse spirits, warn of natural dangers, enforce moral codes, and even represent things like social anxieties. Oni, the ogre-like creatures, are said to bring about disease and disaster, while Kappa, the water imp, caution against venturing into deep waters. Across the globe, we find similar patterns. These narratives aren't just entertainment. They're vital tools for cultural transmission, ensuring valuable knowledge persists across generations. We will have a separate episode discussing things like tricksters and other spirits in a near future. And anthropologically speaking, David Wingrow argues that during the Bronze Age, the proliferation of hybrid monsters was linked to new trade routes and cultural mixing, which elicited psychological anxiety and the anxiety of language diversity in communication difficulties. This is a direct quote. Creating monsters is a way of channeling our cultural and political fears into tangible forms, into objects of loathing and dread. Monsters might not seem like helpful memes because they frighten us and increase stress, but they are almost always part of a larger cultural cautionary tale. The monster plays an important role in norm enforcement, end quote. Some anthropologists theorize the centaur in Greek mythology, which is half man, half horse, was a negative representation of Balkan and proto-Slavic nomadic horse riding cultures of the Caucasus and into the Mongolian steppes. Their customs, strange and alien to Hellene city-states around the Aegean, created a monsterification of the people outside of their cultural regime. This is also where we get the word barbarian. A barbarian was somebody outside of Greek culture. They had women on horseback. You know, you get the Scythians, you get the Sarmatians, you get kind of going into that warrior woman. You know, there's a reason why Ares was said to be placed in Thrace. Thrace being the modern-day Balkans, and how they were so warlike, and how they, they drank undiluted wine, and they had all of these customs, and this strange and alien thing. That's where this, there, a lot of theorists suspect this is where centaurs came from. These wild, horse-bound people who had completely separate cultural ideas and tended to be nomadic, which meant that they treated people in vastly different ways than the Greeks who were used to their own kind of smaller environment. Multiple theorists wonder how many hybrid human monster creatures were originally confused or derogatory games of telephone before proper documentation for the majority of peoples, when all they had to go on was a story told by a woman down the street after hearing it from her brother who heard it from a trader who relayed it from another trader who didn't know how to indicate cultural and societal differences in a way people back home would understand. Most monsters come from a dangerous threat meant to highlight a societal ill, which is thus defeated so normalcy and orthodoxy may resume. And when we look at certain human-animal hybrids, you have to kind of look at what was going on in the trade routes, what was going on with various different people groups coming together and various languages coming together and various even cultural and societal costumes all of those things can kind of come together to start seeing this almost socio-political pressure of the outsider as monsters so that you can also maintain your monoculture within its you know systematic walls and the, its systematic framework so you've got a culture you're trying to make sure it stays the same well then you have to kind of demonize <laughs> the people outside of that and 
some of our monsters and our more monstrous races actually come from that root. Or <laughs> there's another way that they could come about too. And this is a proto-scientific examination into natural phenomenon and predation fear by populations prior to the rise of the scientific method and technology capable of defending the entire social groupings of humanoids. And so this idea that they're explaining things in a way that they understand, even though they don't have the scientific method quite yet, they don't have the ability to say, okay, so those lights in the sky that we see in the north here, those are magnetic storms in the stratosphere creating like the aurora borealis. They don't have that. They don't understand that that's what's happening and that's what's going on. And so they're creating, well, this must be an omen from some form of deity. There must be a reason why this exists. And I think for me, this is something that kind of comforts me about monsters, but also terrifies. You know, there's always that idea that humans are looking for a reason why something exists. And sometimes they're looking for the existence of their fears. And they're looking to understand their fears by putting those fears onto an outside plinth. So this sort of examination into natural phenomenon and predation fear can lead to the creation of myths that go bump in the night. Daz was talking earlier about stories set around the fire, both as entertainment and as warning. You know, they entertain, they're scary. Sometimes people like to be scared. Other times that fear makes them more vigilant. And then they're likely to not fall asleep when they're looking around to make sure that there are no predators around the camp. Humans, by virtue of pattern recognition and innate search for meaning, need to define their world. Prior to the appearance of conceptual language to guide discussions on weather patterns, natural disasters, cyclical conditions like the flooding of the Nile or the coming of hurricane season, shipwrecks or apex predator behaviors outside the settlement, humanity was still driven to define terms and figure out their world with the information available to them. Chaos is easier to handle with an explanation. There is no more primal fear than that of the unknown howl in the dark. Gods inevitably start as nebulous and unknowable forces emanating out of this chaos, this unknowable void and darkness. Gods, like monsters, inevitably start as nebulous and unknowable forces. Think of the original creation deities in Japanese Shinto belief known as the Koto Amatsukami. These are unknown, but known. They're named, but not necessarily known deities that started the cycle of creation. And then you have similar perspectives in some of Egyptian history. Now, you have to consider that Egyptian history is vast. <laughs> it's thousands of years. And so there are a few different origin myths and cosmogonic myths of Egyptian religion going back thousands of years. So where it's like, oh, I don't remember that. Well, you know what? Maybe there's there's some here and there's, there's others over there. But there is the Ogodad, which was a group of eight, you know, four males, four females that were Egyptian creator deities. There is also Ta, that is P-T-A-H. And Ta was the creator god who spoke the world into being. So depending on what timeline we're in, whether it's old kingdom, kind of middle kingdom, you know, you'll get various different uh, creation myths, but you still have that nebulous, chaotic figure. We don't get to the personal tetragrammaton for a little bit. And so again, you see that initial chaos and then becoming more personal as things go on. 
And you get more and more personal and anthropomorphic as culture progresses. So monsters are so similar and they may have had their beginnings in obvious dangers or genetic memory of the dark, the cold, the dead. While this unknown brought about the entrenchment in some humanity and exploration in others, it still came with the pension for creating monsters to defeat or explain tragedy, danger, or patterns in the natural world. Monsters are also a form of control. You tell somebody that there's a monster in that valley, the likelihood is most people will not go into that valley. Chaos itself is scary. It's easier to defeat a fear when we know it. This alone is one of the most intrinsic tools we have in psychotherapy and Jungian analysis. Chaos with eyes which look upon you with intent. Ask Emily Armstrong's characters Corbin and Lark from Macabre and Monsters how terrifying that could be. Uh, There is an entire genre of fiction called cosmic horror, which deals with that. And Emily Armstrong is our resident cosmic horror person. Cognitive and emotional development in threat awareness and monster creation within societal inclusion zones means that monsters are often representative of ancestral aspects of the human psyche. They warn of the other and as a central comparison to ourselves. So we see this in Grendel and Grendel's mother in Beowulf. Grendel is a dark and often parallel shadow representation of Beowulf, this incredible hero. Grendel is this representation of Beowulf's monstrous fighting style and adequacy in battle. And then where Beowulf is noble in bearing and is quite rational when he needs to be, Grendel continues to embody that darkness and that viciousness in a warrior. In it, Beowulf, this noble warrior who's honorable and coming to the charge, and he's coming to Rothgar's Hall to solve Rothgar's problems, even though multiple warriors have died in the attempt, Beowulf goes, I will help you for the sole purpose that it's the right thing to do. He thus ends up ripping Grendel's arm off and beating him to death with it. Our hero (laughs) rips off somebody's limb and then beats them to death with their own arm. That is a fairly monstrous thing to do. And so Grendel is that monster that is within every man. He is that monster that is in the fighting man, that is in the warrior, that is in the soldier, you know, and yet the story of Beowulf, especially in the first half of it, before we get to Beowulf and the dragon, which we'll talk about in our episode about dragons in a couple of weeks, it is the story of Beowulf going down into that dark place and fighting with that parallel shadow representation of himself and then coming back out the victor. And doing so, not for his own reasons, but to help society at large. And what we find in a lot of medieval literature and what we find in a lot of literature where soldiers fight the monster, where warrior goes up against the scary, scary thing, or even with Hercules, it's more of an atonement myth um, than anything else, is that to defeat the monster is to return to society and be worthy of societal honoring to return to the normative instead of that outward brutality that you had outside, especially when you consider that Beowulf is a work of Norse 
originating fiction uh, or mythology, I guess you could say. And there is a strong idea of the Utengard or the outside and the inside being very different. Inside is where society is and all the rules are, and outside is all anarchist and violent. Safa, have you seen the Grendel opera? The Grendel opera? No, I have not. Oh, man. So they made... There's the book Grendel, which is the retelling of Beowulf from Grendel's perspective. They turned that book into an opera. Oh, for the love of everything holy. It was done by Julie Taymor, who is the woman who did the Lion King musical. But she keeps coming back and doing productions. And like, this is what Grendel's production looked like. Oh my fucking God. Okay, you know what that is? That is late 90s, early 2000s dystopic book covers. I'm sorry. It's that that came about in this era where in the postmodern shakeup, going from modernism to postmodernism, they were attempting purposely to subvert everything that people loved in the past and turn it on its head so you feel bad about it. Like I've read Grendel, obviously, you know, I have written many, many a paper on Beowulf. I grew up with my grandfather or writing the stories as bedtime stories in Old Norse. This is the most foundational lullaby that I've had in my entire life is Beowulf. It's just interesting to see what people do with that kind of thing. But uh, I think we saw this too. We were talking about this, but you know, like Suicide Squad, Kill the Justice League just came out. Read the title, Suicide Squad, Kill the Justice League. If you're not in there to kill the Justice League, we don't play this game. They were trying to like subvert the whole hero villain thing but they did it in such a way that a lot of people were like, no, no, you didn't do good enough subverting these characters for us to care. You didn't do good enough for us to buy into it. And it created a lot of problems for that company. But no, like subverting monsters is, is something that we have to look at. And in modern times, that is part of myth punk. It is part of many stories to subvert the monster hero dynamic. And it's something that, you know, you can also see in the magician archetype going back in human history, you know, a warrior archetype defeats their dragons. A magician knows that they are their dragons, that they create the society which creates these dragons in the first place. And so there is that part of kind of cultural development as well. If we're moving away from a sort of warrior archetype within our cultural scheme and going more towards that sort of wisdom magician kind of thing that you hope we're going towards, then you'll figure out that, yeah, how do we look at our dragons and then transmute that energy and make that dragon integrated into society in a way that they weren't in the past? So that's part of it too. You know, there are different ways of dealing with monsters. Again, if you are writing about a historical monster or a creature that goes bump in the night and you're attempting to subvert what that creature represented to a lot of people, first, you got to do a damn good job. First, you got to research and know what your content is actually about. Yeah. What's the purpose of it? Don't just do it because you want to be edgy. There has to be a reason. And so most religions, when you look at creation of monsters and you look at creation of mythic beings that people would dread or fear, most religions drifted from animism to polytheism to monotheism, according to religious anthropologists. Animism as a primitive origin to belief includes an idea that everything has a spirit or a soul. The trees, the water, the air, and the birds all have soul or spirit. The darkness itself has soul and spirit. The deer hunted and eaten has a soul and spirit to appease. This sense of all soul creates a situation where humanity defines itself through the stories we tell and help define early monsters. If everything has a soul, by virtue of staying alive, 
you are destroying some of those souls or you have to appease those souls in order to not turn ill or have calamity come upon you because those souls are angry for their deaths. You then have to act with appeasement to return things back to center. The initial animistic origins developed over time in many cultures to a polytheistic one, where specific deities became in charge of certain tree species, animals, weather patterns, or seas. The progression from animism to polytheism is often attributed to the human development of technology capable of relative societal safety within settlement and agriculture, and a sense of burgeoning or growing control. Where one can only hope to appease the individual spirits of an animist belief, an anthropomorphized polytheistic deity can hopefully be reasoned with or cajoled into mercy or vengeance in equal measure. Yet, the fears remain. The monsters remain a deep and prevailing indication into ancestral fears, incomplete scientific knowledge, and quests heroes can conquer and thus gain control over a terrifying and capricious world to be brought back to the center where the societal norms and the societal desires bring peace. Myths and legends have long been a source of fascination and fear. They're fantastical creatures captivating our imaginations since the dawn of storytelling. But even in the age of smartphones and space exploration, these beings haven't faded into dusty folklore. From Bigfoot lurking in remote forests to vampires sparkling on screen, mythical creatures and their lesser-known cousins, the cryptids, continue to influence our modern world in surprising ways. From myth to legend to literature... Dragons have evolved with the times so well that they are in our tabletop role-playing games. From the classical creatures breathing fire in the early days of TTRPGs, they have continued to evolve. Some now breathe frost, acid, lightning, or even a concussive force. Their forms, too, have evolved from the more serpentine of Asian myths and the fuller bodies of European tales. Now there are hybrid dragons mixed with nearly every animal type as well as people. They have become a cornerstone of fantasy RPGs and have even snuck into the realm of sci-fi. Yeah, from fiery dragons soaring across silver screens to mischievous fairies flitting through young adult novels, mythic creatures continue to captivate our imagination. But what is it about these fantastical beings that hold such lasting power? It's probably their ability to tap into our deepest desires and fears. They embody stuff like bravery, wisdom, and mystery, yet they can also represent chaos, destruction, and the unknown. They provide a safe place to explore these complex emotions through engaging narratives, but appreciating these modern interpretations requires respecting their origins. Remember, these creatures aren't mere blank slates for our imagination. They really carry the weight of their cultural heritage, and neglecting that context can lead to harmful stereotypes and inaccurate portrayals. Striking a balance is really key, and ultimately, these modern interpretations ensure that the legacy of mythical creatures continues. They become bridges between cultures and generations, fostering understanding and sparking new conversations about our world and ourselves. And with that, all you rebels, writers, and gamers, we're wrapping up another mind-bending episode of We Aren't Dead Yet, your go-to for all things TTRPG and Specklet. 
Stay wild, curious, and keep defying the ordinary. Until next time, hit up Wadi at vredamedia.ca slash Wadi. That's V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash W-A-D-Y. Like and subscribe, share with your friends, check out our merch store. We'll see you next week for more news, views, and hullabaloos. So keep the fires burning, the dice rolling, and the pages turning. And remember, there's always something we can do, because we We aren't aren't dead yet. yet.